This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, it's Matt. From time to time, I've joined legendary West Virginia radio broadcaster Howard Monroe on his morning show to talk about what's going on in politics. And I did that again this week. We had a great conversation, kind of related to the theme of the show I did with Politicus USA editor Sarah Jones last week on how we got here to this place in American politics and how the heck do we get out. We had a great discussion, and so we wanted to provide it in the podcast feed here. I hope you enjoy it. So here's Howard Monroe. Last hour, we were talking with Ryan Frankenberry from West Virginia Working Families, and we were talking about um, Joe Biden perhaps being a transformational president, and I think that's very real. Um, I said that Ronald Reagan, I thought, was a transformational president. We began, we turned towards uh, corporate America and big business, and government became more of a big business government uh, during Reagan's years, so we, we very transformational. Donald Trump's years, to me, were disruptive maybe is the word i would use they were filled with angst and anxiety they were uh every day you had to wake up and go oh god what's gonna happen next um and even if you even if you were a trump supporter you had to feel agitated half the time while he was in office and there is a greater sense of calm and i don't know what word to use not peace but uh serenity i guess serenity now uh, in in our country uh, under Joe Biden, but we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go to come back from what Trump took us to. Matt Robeson, one of our uh, morning show contributors, uh, who does uh, podcasts and has a talk show, and has been a congressional staffer and a campaign consultant, has been looking into this. How do we find our way back? On several of his podcasts recently. And I thought he could join us this morning and talk about it. Matt, good morning, sir. Oh, good morning. Always great to talk to you. Do you think, uh, is disruptive a good word to use for Trump's presidency? Republican insiders who I've spoken with talk about his effect as just completely scrambling what used to be the lanes in the Republican Party and then eventually all of the uh, affiliations and preconceived notions of American politics. So, yeah, disruptive is a, is a great term. I, I've often wondered, and this gets your personal thought on this, did Trump go out with the intent of destroying Americans' faith in most of their institutions? Because he did. I mean, he tried to destroy the faith in the press, to try to destroy the faith in the, faith in the FBI, in the Department of Justice, uh, in the judicial system. Um, was that an intent, or was that a side effect of 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 his of his personal drive to do what he wanted to do? It's a good question. I, I think his main intent was to sell stakes. I don't <laughs> believe, and there's been some pretty good reporting on this. I don't believe that he set out to actually win the presidency. If you remember yeah. that Robert Redford movie, The Candidate, 1974, yeah. about you know this this young guy who runs for Senate. He's not expecting to win. He wins, and he grabs his campaign consultant. He says, what do we do now? 
That scene apparently actually played out at Trump Tower on election night 2016. So the short answer is I don't believe that he set out with the intent to disrupt, to destroy trust in institutions. There's good polling on this. Over the long term, Pew polling, which is one of the best sources of, of public polling information, public opinion research, has studied this question of trust in government, trust in institutions. It's been on a long downward slide. Trust in government is now down below 20 percent. That's that's a 30 percentage point drop over the last 50 years. You also see trust in institutions overall being weighed down. Now, the one thing that Donald Trump did explicitly do, and this was something that commentators said had shades of authoritarianism to it, is he repeatedly said on the campaign trail in 2016 how awful all the institutions were, how awful everything in society was, and that only he, Trump, could fix it. He was the salvation. Look, read the book 1984 by George Orwell, and that's exactly the approach that the authoritarian, totalitarian government that that he invents in that society takes. Here are all the threats to your life. Here are all the problems. Only the dear leader can solve them. That is something that Trump did explicitly do and very effectively. And it is something that the Republican Party is still having to wrestle with because there are, uh, and we're watching this play out with the Liz Cheney story and others, uh, there are folks in the Republican Party who who believe that uh, Trump is the only guy that can save them. And that, and still do, even after the insurrection, even after the election, even after the big lie. Um, it still is a huge factor in the Republican Party. Absolutely. Well, you know, if I... I don't know how willing you are to go down a, a one-minute rabbit hole with me, but I, I have a theory about this, and it, it's it's a little out there. Um, but if you're if you're willing to if you're willing to go down the rabbit hole, there's if you ever study economics, if you ever take an, an econ 101 course, there is a classic study of the Irish potato famine, and what they found is that potatoes during the Irish potato famine had this strange phenomenon happened where as the availability of potatoes went down the it, it, it's not just that the it's not just that the price went up but that essentially people got into the position where they could no longer afford anything else the demand for potatoes went up as the price went up everything else in the world as the price goes up you don't you don't buy as much of it. Right. But what happened in the Irish potato famine is, you know, you, you could you have to get most of your calories from potatoes in that society. And so as the price of potatoes went up, it crowded out your ability to afford anything else. And so you started demanding more potatoes. I think Donald Trump has become the potato of the Republican Party. I think that <laughs> as the cost politically of supporting Trump has gone up, it's crowded out the ability to do anything else. You can't win an election in America unless you have Trump's base as a Republican. And so you face this really stark choice of, do I break with Trump and then I have no shot as a Republican, or do I go all in and demand even more Trump and go to the extremes of fealty to Trump? which is your only path. That seems to me to be what's what's happened to Republicans 
So there is no hope the Republican Party will right itself. Ah, that's a great question. A lot of analysts have been wrestling with this. I don't know. I think there is hope, and the hope is actuarial. The dude is 75 years old, and mm-hmm. he's uh, obese, and he does not exercise. And, of course, you know, because of Murphy's Law, I'm not wishing death on it. I, I really I, – I would not wish – I would not wish evil or ill health or or any bad outcome to any human being. However, just as a matter of statistics, you know, it's not like he's actually going to live forever. Um, And and what you see right now is jockeying in the Republican Party to be the heir apparent. The the leading front runner for that is Ron DeSantis. But that's what happens with these cults of personality. It's one of the big parlor games. I actually wrote a long article about this about a year ago, and I interviewed a bunch of Republican insiders. They all wanted to be off the record except for one because no one wanted to speak ill of Trump. But the big question is, is Trump's political capital transferable? Could it go to Don Jr.? Could it go to Laura Trump? That's that's sort of the big question is who well, that's a good inherits question. Is it? this? Is it? What, what, what conclusion did you and, and the folks you talked to come to? I don't think so. I don't think so. No one knows for sure, but I don't think so. I think there is a particular cult of personality that, that goes with him. But there are, also, there are also dynamics that led to the rise of Trump, and they aren't necessarily going to exist for all time. To give you an example from just just the last week, there are features of social media that have been put in place over the last decade or so that have been really subtly behind the scenes, super duper important to the rise of Trump. The like and share feature of Facebook and Twitter have been super duper important that that virality uh, the ability to create a filter bubble around content, super fans essentially around mm-hmm. Trump-related news content, media content, and his direct marketing channel to his supporters has been incredibly important. That's why when he got booted off Twitter, it was sort of seen as a big deal. But campaign insiders were far more concerned about the Facebook ban. And what you saw when the ban, when the board, the super secret corporate overlord board that controls who can stay on Facebook and who can't, made their decision last week that they were essentially going to extend the ban for another six months uh, and kick it back to Facebook, that was seen as a bigger deal than Twitter because that is his direct communications channel to his supporters. It's his direct fundraising channel. That's the most important medium. And so – There are a lot of decisions that these big social media companies make about their algorithms, how people share information, how you can uh, directly contact uh, supporters, how you can advertise with politics-related content. They're making changes all the time. And, of course, Washington is involved from the regulatory standpoint. So back to your big question, is sort of the, 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 the Trump political empire transferable to his heirs to to some designated heir apparent. I think it's it's hard to know with a cult of trans uh, uh, of, of personality. Usually, it's not. But also, you have to look at some of these other factors that could change over the next 
five or ten years, and, and that would have a lot to say in whether someone can inherit the, the, Trent, the uh, Trump political empire. You know, I, while you were doing that, I, I was thinking of a really strange analogy, but I think it works. I was thinking of Rush Limbaugh in the broadcasting business, and Rush Limbaugh was the king of conservative talk, and as you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of clones that tried to be like Rush and were like Rush and sounded like Rush and talked like Rush and said the same things that Rush did. But when Rush Limbaugh passed away, did anybody take the throne, take the crown? The answer is no. Suddenly, there was nobody really who could step up and replace him because it was Rush was Rush. I know that's a strange analogy to make in terms of politics, but I, it comes to my mind in, in broadcasting. And I don't think well, we'll not at all. Again see. I mean, you know what it reminds me of is the Bill Gates quote, which is that people always overestimate the amount of change that's going to happen over the next two years and underestimate the amount of change that's going to happen over the next 10. And think back 10 years to where we were. It was a shockingly different time in America. So, you know, it, the, the amount of change over the last 10 years has been breathtaking. So oh, absolutely. It's fundamentally unknowable, but if you can bet on one thing, it's that there's going to be a substantial amount of change over the next 10 years. Talking to Matt Robeson this morning here on the Watchdog Morning Show. So, Matt, I know you've been doing some uh, talking to some folks on your various podcasts about how do we as a country find our way back, and maybe not the Republican Party per se, but as a country, as a society, as individuals, how do we find our way back from Trumpism? Well, it's an incredibly complicated question, and I spent a lot of time on a recent – I did a podcast and a video interview with the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, which is a terrific news website your listeners may have visited uh, themselves. Um, her name is Sarah Jones, and we did a deep dive on this question. And I think in order to, in order to find our way out as a country – we have to understand exactly what we mean by where we are and how we got into it. And I broke it down, and I won't go into all the detail on this, but I broke it down into three main things that happened to get us here. Some of them were unavoidable, by which I mean they were deep demographic and societal changes. For example, the realignment of the political parties that started in the 1960s as both parties used to have a liberal and a conservative wing, but that realignment happened, kicked off by the civil rights movement, and that created a very stark left-right divide between the parties. So that's, that's a sort of unavoidable change. And then there were a, a number of changes that had unintended consequences. For example, I referenced before changes to the way social media did business. The introduction of the retweet button, was 2009. And the developer who did that, this guy named Chris Wetherill, said he thought it was a mistake. He, he was afraid that we just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon, and he was right. <laughs> but those right, kinds yeah. of changes to social media that have had untold effects on the way we perceive reality and the way we get information and interact politically, those are changes that can be undone. They were unintentional, and they are undoable. Finally, there's a third category, which is intentional changes, things that we did. Um, and, for example, Newt Gingrich ushered in in 1994 a complete change in the way we communicate 
politically and absolutism. I saw it myself in my career on Capitol Hill. I used to sit in, you know, back rooms, political back rooms on campaigns where someone would propose saying something really outlandish about the opponent. And a campaign consultant would say, no, 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 you can't, you can't say that. It'll backfire. It'll boomerang on us. Voters don't like that. You don't hear those kinds of voices anymore. And that was a change that campaigns realized, yeah, there's really not a downside to going too far. And so they started to do it. So the, the answer to the question, I don't have a full answer. I don't think anyone has a full answer. But I suspect that the answer is there's not one silver bullet. It's going to take a whole bunch of small steps. And I have, I have a list for you, but, but that's my – that's my big short answer is there's probably about a dozen things that we need to do to address the unintended, the unavoidable, and the intentional changes that we've seen in America over the last 50 years. So is it, is it doable? Is your list doable? Yes. Yes. I have great hope. I have great hope because if you look at some of them are actually relatively simple. So, for example, um, removing the like and share button, it's something that technology experts call demetrification, which is getting rid of the measurable impact. We've all done it, right? You sent a tweet, you know, you posted something on Facebook, and then you start checking to see how many likes it got, how how many many retweets it got. You know, yeah, exactly. Well, you you can stop that. You can also kill all the bots on Twitter. We... We have a very warped understanding of what is popular and what is trending and, and the information that's put in front of our eyes online. Forty percent of us get the majority of our news and information online through social media these days. And so you can fix an awful lot of those perceptions if you get rid of the box. Half the information that was tweeted a year ago as the pandemic was really gaining steam, half the information tweeted about the pandemic, according to MIT researchers, was, was tweeted by bots. Most of those bots are controlled by Russia. So right. these are fixes that we can make. There are other things we can do. I, you know, a big one that I, Howard, I think will hit home for you. I mean, you and I are both involved in audio news and audio information. Well, we're all aware of the fact that newspapers have been hard hit. But, I mean, you know as well as anyone, radio stations have been hard hit over the last, 20 or 30 years. We, most Americans, 65 million Americans, live in counties with only one local newspaper or none at all. Over the last 15 years, 20% of American newspapers have shut down. So we're losing some of those sources of unbiased, factual information that aren't driven by bots and Russians on social media. Well, that's a fixable problem. It may take philanthropy. It may take Uh, nonprofit institutions, but it's the kind of thing that we can wrap our arms around. So bottom line, I don't have all the answers, but I'm actually hopeful that we can address a lot of the conditions that led to the rise of Trump. Your uh, interview with the editor from Politicus USA was in, uh, what podcast was that on? I I listened to it. That was part of the Beyond Politics podcast. It's also uh, available as a Facebook watch on the Beyond Politics Facebook page. It's also up on YouTube. 
And if you go to Politicus USA, they uh, they lead with that interview in their in their video section. Yeah, I saw that on their page too. So it's Politicus P O L I T I C U S U S A. Yeah, um, that's something that your autocorrect is definitely going to want to wrangle, but uh, but it is Politicus <laughs> USA. Uh, actually, until I heard your interview, and I I was familiar with them. But I kept calling it Politics USA until I actually heard you say, oh, no, I guess I'm pronouncing that wrong. I guess it's wrong. So, um, uh, all right, so uh, people can check out your Beyond Politics podcast, also the Great Ideas podcast. Anything good coming up on that? Right, that's yeah, a dumb question. Know, of course it's good. I, well, I've always got something good. Um, right. I'm not going to be Trumpian about it and say the greatest is coming up. But uh, <laughs> we, do, we do have some really great stuff. Um, I'm actually doing a, a back-to-back. Uh, over the next week, I'm interviewing the economist Diane Lim today and um, a, a, a really excellent uh, policy expert, Julie Cashin, later this week on, on Beyond Politics and Great Ideas. And what we're talking about is the news that came out on Friday that we only created about 250,000 jobs uh, for the month. Well, it left economists scratching their heads. Why on earth? They were expecting a million jobs. Why so few? And it it looks like a big part of the answer is people are having a hard time coming back to work because they don't have child care. They don't have elder care. Most of the recession is actually a she session. It's actually women who have left the labor force and have not been able to come back. Most male employment has rebounded to pre-pandemic levels. Female employment has not. And so we're going to dig into the reasons why and the all-important question of how do you fix that? How do you get the economy really humming again? And you probably have to solve some of these other problems first to do it. Beyond Politics, great ideas. People can find them on Apple Podcasts, among other places. And Matt, it's always good talking to you. We'll probably do it again soon because there's several things you're working on that are catching my attention, so I'll chat with you soon, and we'll get you back here, all right? Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Matt Robeson, uh, former congressional consultant, campaign staffer, uh, talk show host, and uh, podcast host, uh, Beyond Politics and Great Ideas uh, podcast, both. Again, you can find on Apple Podcasts, the first one that I think of, because that's where our watchdog podcasts are as well. Um or pretty much any place where your podcasts come from, you'll find Matt's stuff. Um, he's become a regular part of our of our team here. We kind of we use Tom Squidieri every Tuesday to talk about some of the details of the daily news in the nation's capital, and I use Matt to kind of give us a a bigger, broader picture of things. So, I try to do it all for you. I try and do it all for you, people. I try to do it all for you. 